We are uh, continuing our series on hell. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm shocked any time people keep showing up for these things. Uh, because it's not a popular topic, and per- maybe that's what, what brought you here. I was talking to my dad on, on the phone the other day, and he said, well, I heard you're doing a series on hell. I said, yeah. He said, didn't you do a series on race a while ago? I said, yeah. He said, golly, he says, you're picking the easy topics, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, well, I guess, I guess so. I, I said, it's sometimes it's easier, though, picking topics nobody else is talking about because then you don't have any as many contradicting opinions about it. Um, and, and, and he said, well, has it gone well? I said, yeah, we, we had a lot more people. He said, I, well, I guess you picked a hot topic then. Uh, <laughs> So we're, we're, we're continuing on this topic, and uh, last week, uh, somebody forgot to hit record before they um, put the recorder in their pocket, so uh, unfortunately we don't have that, but just to give a review for those of you, if you weren't here, on uh, what we covered last week, we talked about the primary difference between heaven and hell, and what we stated was that the primary difference between heaven and hell is the presence of God. And if you were here this morning, you heard a great message uh, that ties in with last week's message. Uh, this this week's message was on Psalm uh, 67. And Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. In the Old Testament, the face of God was associated with His presence. And as you read the scriptures, when they talk about the, the punishment of hell, it's described as a pl- outer place, a, a place where you're cast away. And oftentimes it's accompanied by God or a king, as the parable may say, saying, depart from me. And to those who are accepted into his kingdom, come into. So th- th- there's this spatial difference that is essential in the difference between heaven and hell. We talked a lot about how all good things flow from God. And to be separated from all that goodness puts you into a place of eternal torment in the just and righteous judgment of God. We have our uh, working definition, I think, up behind me. Uh, Y'all can see how well I, I have it memorized. We've described hell as the place of eternal conscious torment, separated from the felt presence of God and His grace. That's the definition we've been using. Thanks for that thumbs up. I appreciate it. I'm glad I got it right. That's the definition we've been using. And as we've been going through in various passages, we've been seeing different elements of that definition come out. And this week, we're going to be talking about uh, something that was talked a little bit about in the first week. The first week I was actually sick. Stacy substituted for me. He accused me of chickening out uh, from the topic, but Stacy filled in, and he gave a, a great explanation of what type of person ends up in hell. And the conclusion he came with up with is somebody that is useless for the kingdom of God and its purposes. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a, a similar question, but it's got a, a slightly different nuance. Uh, we're going to be looking at what merits hell, or, or what can you do to, to earn hell. Now, that's usually kind of the opposite of, of what you think. You try and think, what merits heaven? What can we do to get into heaven? So we're, we're going to take the opposite end of the spectrum and look at what merits hell. Now, before we get into our passage, 
Uh, there's uh, some details I, uh, I just want to bring out real quick. And, and that is, there's a presentation of Jesus that's often given uh, that isn't very accurate. And, and there's a presentation of Jesus that kind of pre- presents him as this nice, gracious, forgiving guy who's very lax on sin. And there's a presentation almost of, you know, the Old Testament God, he's real harsh on sin, he's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's all those things. Uh, and the Old Testament is just hard on all those things. But Jesus, he, he was a pretty easygoing guy. And, and he took sin lightly. And one of the things that you should know as we get into this passage is it comes right after a section where uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus does right before he gets into the passage we're going to be looking at today is explain that his standards of righteousness are higher than just about anybody else's. In in fact, the Pharisees in that day and age, if you were making bets and taking odds on who'd get into heaven, the Pharisees would, would be the front runners. They would be the favorites because they had all these laws, all these ceremonies to make sure that they didn't even get close to breaking the laws of Moses and the commands of Moses. So they were kind of known as the most righteous guys are in town. And so for Jesus to say your righteousness has got to be better than theirs is quite a shocking statement. For their ears. For our ears, it's kind of shocking to hear, hear Jesus say, hey, look, that Old Testament law that y'all think so harsh, guess what? I'm going to give you some standards that are even higher and even harder. And that's what we're going to be looking at today as we ask this question, what merits hell? What should we do to avoid hell? We're going to look at how Jesus answers this question in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 21. We're going to read through 24, then we're going to hop down to verse 27 and read 27 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord, spoken by Jesus. You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire, uh, to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now we're going to skip down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart to the meaning of your word. That you would soften our spirit and our conscience that we might be molded by your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work in and through us. We pray for your word to be pronounced in such a way that transforms our lives to the honor and to the glory of you. That we might be a people for your own possession who declare the marvelous glory of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We ask these things in Jesus' wonderful and beautiful name. Amen. Uh, so we we have this passage starting out, and, and we're asking this question, uh, what meritel? And we've said that kind of people say that there's a presentation of Jesus that has him kind of soft on sin, and that, you know, the Old Testament was really hard and really harsh, and, you know, the New Testament's a lot easier. But that's not what we find in this passage, is it? You know, on a good day, you know, nobody cuts me off on 240. You know, the, the traffic isn't too bad. The construction hasn't, hasn't blocked things up too bad. I can get away with not murdering somebody. But, but, but what does the, this passage here say? It says, no, no, no. It, it's not just when you don't murder. It's not just when you don't kill somebody. But everyone who's angry with his brother is going to be brought under judgment. Uh, not only those who are, who are angry with their brothers are going to be brought under judgment, that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. As Jesus goes, he's kind of upping the ante. It started out with actually part of the Old Testament law paired with a saying of men. So you shall not murder, that's a commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, that second part was kind of added on, by the way. So the kind of the impetus is is you shouldn't murder because if you do, you might end up in court. And, and in a way, that diminishes the law of God, doesn't it? That okay, in order to take the command of God seriously, we've we've got to be concerned about how the courts are involved. And, and as, as Jesus goes through this progression, he kind of says, "You know what can get you in trouble in the court?" Getting angry. And, and do you know what will bring you before the highest council? Insulting your brother. And do you know what will get you in trouble in the highest court of all eternity? Calling somebody a fool. The, the, he, he's saying the stakes are higher than what you think they are. He's also presenting to us standards that are much higher than what you think they are. Uh, Spurgeon, as he usually does, gives a great description of this passage. He said, God takes cognizance of the emotions from which acts of hate may spring and calls us to account as much for the angry feeling as for the murderous deeds. Words also come under the same condemnation. A man shall be judged for what he shall say to his brother. 
To call a man raka or a worthless fellow is to kill him in his reputation. And to say to him, thou fool, is to kill him as to the noblest characteristics of a man. Hence, all this comes under such censure as men distribute in their counsels. Yes, and under what is far worse, the punishment awarded by the highest court of the universe, which dooms men to hellfire. Thus, our Lord and King restores the law of God to its true force and warns us that it denounces not only the overt act of killing, but every thought, feeling, and word which would tend to injure a brother or annihilate him by contempt. What Jesus is presenting is that what merits hell is both the root and the fruit of sin. And I think what, what happens in our minds oftentimes is that we, we think of only the outward fruit. And, and not only that, we only think of the most extreme forms of the outward fruit. You, you think of murder. That's why when, when we talk about hell, you know, who are the two people that always come up? We've done it in this series. Hitler and Stalin. Why is that? Because we think only those people really deserve it. You know, hell's a place for people that bad. Hell's a place for people with those extreme atrocities. Not, not the little flirtations with sin that I have. Not the little outbursts of anger as I'm driving along. This is an extreme danger. Jesus points out it's, it's not just those outward manifestations that are the problem. It's not only those things that lead us to eternal damnation. The problem we have is that inside of us, we have something that is producing this anger, that's producing this hatred against men who are made in the image of God. And it's not just when it overflows into our actions, the fact that we have this in our heart being constantly produced is a danger to our immortal souls. As we say, Jesus comes down hard on sin. Not just in its vilest forms, but in the ways we like to excuse it and dismiss it. Hell is our inheritance. Hell is our wages for the desires of our heart. And hell is where we belong, based not only on what we do, but what we desire deep within our hearts. One of the things he does here, and this is interesting, I was tempted to skip this part, but it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come off your gift. One of the things that this is doing is condemning an action of the Pharisees. So if they insulted or hurt somebody else, uh, what, what would they do? They'd rush off and offer a sacrifice to try and make up for it. What God's saying is, no, 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 that's not what I want. I want you to be reconciled with your brother. I want you to be concerned about the peace you have with your brother. Another thing we'll, we'll see in Scripture is that this idea 
This idea that, oh, I can do a good work that will undo the bad work. That, that is not how things work in God's eternal economy. You don't get to undo a bad deed by doing a good deed. And we talked about this a little bit in terms of what we owe God. Okay, so, so if God is the creator and sustainer of the universe who gives me us life and breath and everything, and every good and perfect gift that we receive, we receive from him. Now, if he's given me life and breath and everything, what do I owe him? Life and breath and everything. So if I spend every moment giving my life and breath and my everything to him, what is the net gain for him? It's nothing. Now, guess what? If I miss a breath, just in, in that breath, I didn't honor or glorify God. What's my deficit? One breath's worth. Now, what, what's the only thing I have to make up for that? Well, using another breath that I already owe him. So that once you're in a deficit with a God who has given you everything, you're in deep trouble. Because you can only loan against yourself. This is the reason why Christ's work is necessary for us. Because we don't have the ability to repay what we owe. We don't have the ability to undo what we've done. We don't have any good works to cancel out our wickedness. This uh, principle he applies is not only towards actions of anger, but he goes on to lust. In verse 27, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, C.S. Lewis gives a great example. He says, anybody who looks at bacon and eggs with hunger has committed breakfast in his heart. So, so, so what's he saying there is, is there your intentions and your desires with which you are looking at something. Here he says, look, it, it doesn't take full-fledged adultery. It doesn't take the most extreme outworking of the lust of our eyes to bring down condemnation. He says, what we feel in our heart, the things we try and hide and veil, can bring condemnation. A look, a glance, the intent of the heart. Now, one of the things that we start getting really into scary territory is what Jesus starts concluding from these things. And oftentimes, it's it's interesting, oftentimes this anger passage and this lust passage are just presented as, okay, here's something against uh, lust, here's something against anger, and it's warning against those things. These are really passages warning us about hell. You know, l- lust and anger, anger are, the, are the causes that lead us to it, but it's really a warning. Hey, if you want to avoid hell, you, you need to deal with these things. You need to deal with this anger. You need to deal with this lust. And by the way, if those aren't your particular areas of sin... Um, you know what lust is? Do you know what adultery is? It's a form of coveting. 
It is coveting your neighbor's wife, somebody else's wife, wanting what belongs to somebody else, but not to you. Now, if that isn't your particular brand of coveting, maybe you're looking at somebody else's job, coveting after that. Maybe maybe you're looking at somebody else's health, saying, why am I suffering this way, yet, yet they're doing fine? Maybe you're lusting after somebody else's possession, saying, how come they get the nice car and the nice house? How come they see, it seems like everything goes right with them, but everything goes wrong with me? There there are different ways in which the lust of the eye can cause us danger. If that's not your particular brand of sin, take your pick. Each of them point to a problem deep-rooted within us that we are people who constantly long for self-worship. And the wickedness of our heart manifests that continually before us. Now, what does Jesus say we should do about this? Okay, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Spurgeon, as he talks about this passage, he says, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, it's wrong. If your right hand causes you to sin, it's wrong. And it needs to be dealt with. Now, uh, I went into the kitchen and I grabbed this. We're now going to get to the practical application portion of the message. No, uh, this is a knife from the kitchen. And uh, if we take this seriously, one of the things we have, we've got to ask, okay, what are we going to do about this? Here Jesus says, hey, look. Your hand causing you problems, cut it out. Your eye causing you problems, gouge it out. Maybe I should have brought a spoon for the nut, for the eye, and kept a knife for the hands. You know, it, it, how do we apply this? And by the way, most people, you'll be glad to know, have not taken this passage literally. Because guess what happens? If I cut off my hand, have I dealt with the source of the sin? If I gouge out the eye, have I dealt with the source of the sin? I could eventually just be a stump of a person and yet be a very, very wicked stump of a person. Why? Because I haven't dealt with the part of me that is producing the anger. I haven't dealt with the place that is dealing with and producing the lusts of the heart, the coveting. That's more deeply rooted within me. We've got to have something or someone much more powerful than the deeply rooted desires of my heart come and dig them out, come and cut them out. It's as though I need to be remade into a new man by some power or force that is greater than myself if I'm to have any hope of entering into God's kingdom. 
there's a, a, a reason why I, I want to give this message as we are talking about hell. And it's to remind us that hell isn't for other people. The, the, there's a mindset we get, and it's to start thinking, well, you know, people who think different than me, or people that act different than me, adulterers, murderers, you know, we're, our, our culture is so tolerant of sin that it has to be mass murderers or maybe mass adulterers in, in, in order to reach the level where we're confident that they will be condemned to hell. And, and so if, if we get that mindset or if we get the mindset of people with slightly different theology than me are the ones going to hell, people who, who are, are slightly different than me in my Christianity or in their beliefs or in their actions, they're the ones going to hell. And we, we start to just think that hell is for people that are different than me. There's a quote from an article I read by a guy named uh, Peter Gorey. The article's title is brilliant. It says, are we preaching a hell we don't deserve and a Christ we do deserve? He says this, no one will ever be punished in hell for being unlike you in some superficial way. No, they will be punished for being so profoundly like you. That is what is really shocking about hell. It's shocking that we all deserve this fate. Not one of us excluded. When Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this truth shatters all our pretentious self-comparison. As we go on and talk about hell, as we look at the torments that people endure in hell, I want us to be conscious continually of the fact that this is what I deserve. This is what my inheritance is. For the sins of my heart, the anger, the lust, the coveting, the envy, the greed, the selfishness, the idolatry, that springs from my heart, all of it deserves the eternal separation from God and His grace in torment. If justice was carried out when I faced the throne of judgment, He would say, depart from me into eternal torment. That's what I deserve. And until I understand that is what I deserve, I cannot fully appreciate what Christ has done for me. That He has kept me from that fate. That He endured on the cross what I should have endured for eternity. That the first time in His eternal existence, He was separated from the presence of God and His grace. That He endured the wrath of God so that I might enjoy the joys of His presence. Um, We read earlier that Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a double transaction that needs to occur. My sin's got to be dealt with. And I've got to receive something that merits eternal life. Christ provides both. 
takes my sin upon himself and gives me his righteousness. We see also in this passage not only the beauty of Christ and what he has done for us, but we also see the seriousness of sin. If this is the consequence of sin, if this is the consequence of even a sin of the heart, we should take sin very seriously. One thing... um, that you'll encounter as you're dealing with people. Uh, this is often true of people with addictions or other uh, types of chronic sin. You'll be working with them, and there's almost a desire to get over the sin, but not place any constraints on myself. It's, it's one of the things this passage is saying, you need to go to extremes to constrain yourself, to keep yourself from sin. The goal is not to get as close to sin as possible and then turn around at the last minute. The goal is not to be as free as possible so and then just have a whole lot of self-will and self-strength to avoid sin. There are ways, I believe, that we should, in godly wisdom, constrain ourselves because we take sin seriously. There's also a lot of freedom in that. My dog, when he was a puppy... Uh, would get really frustrated whenever I took out a leash and put it on him. He, he would scratch and pull and bite at the leash and, and, and just absolutely hate it. But do you know what happened after a little while? Do you know what happens now when I get out the leash? Oh, he starts getting excited. His tail starts wagging. He starts jumping around. And you have to call him out to say sit. And he's sitting with all that built up energy. That Why? Because he knows that constraint, that leash, is going to provide him greater freedom and enjoyment than he would have without it. When he's got the leash, he gets to go outside. He gets to go on a walk. He gets to go around the block. There's certain people... You've got to realize what are things that are causing you to sin that you need to cut off. If you've struggled with alcohol, it might not be a good idea to hang out in bars. If you have a problem with lust, it might not be a good thing to have an unfiltered internet access. If you have a problem with anger, maybe you should leave 15 minutes early on your morning commute. What are are the the risks I'm taking with my soul that are unnecessary? Do I take sin and its consequence seriously? Am I loving my Savior for what He has done for me? Or am I making light of those things? I hope as, as you leave today, you are harrowed by the reality that hell is a place where we belong for the sinful desires and intentions of our heart. That you rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior who loved us so much that He saved us from those sins by His work on the cross. And I hope you take sin and His sacrifice seriously by avoiding occasions and opportunities to sin.
what meritel, not only the most extreme fruit of our sin, but the root desires of the heart that produce us in sin within us. We have a Savior that is recreating us, removing the works of wickedness, putting in us a heart that desires to do what the Father wills. The transformation won't be complete in this lifetime, but I hope you strive for it until the day you die or until the day when Christ returns to judge all people. To His name be glory forever and ever. Amen.